your copy of God's Word, let's turn together to Genesis chapter 38. Genesis 38, if you didn't bring your copy of God's Word, you'll find the, the text printed in our order of service this morning. We have to confess that as we come to this text, it's, it's a little bit shocking, PG-13 or, or even R-rated, and we may wonder, why in the world is this in our Bibles? Um, I, I think part of the reason why it's in our Bibles is that God is trying to show us what's ultimately going to happen in the, in the later history of redemption. I tried to make the point last time uh, that this last section in Genesis isn't just the Joseph cycle, it's actually the Joseph-Judah cycle. Um, and part of it is an explanation for, for why these two men and their descendants loom so large in Israel's history. When Israel is sitting on the plains of Moab in around 1400 BC preparing to go into the promised land and as Moses reads the five books that he's written to them, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, suddenly they have an explanation. Why Ephraim and Judah are these leading tribes in Israel? Well, here it is. Joseph, uh, the forefather of Ephraim, Judah, they loom large in Israel's story because of what's happening here at the end of Genesis. And particularly, I think the other reason why Genesis 38 is here is we begin to see how it is that God can take an, the most unlikely candidate for his grace and shape him and mold him into the man after his own heart. That's what's going to happen in Judah's life. And this chapter is the turning point. But in order to see it, we need the help of God. So let's ask him for his help. Would you pray with me, please? Almighty God, we come as your people this morning, desiring to hear the word of the Lord. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come. Just as our confession of faith says, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would speak in Holy Scripture. In these scriptures, in the reading of it, and in the proclamation of it, may we en encounter the living God and hear the word of the Lord. Confront us, comfort us, but above all, point us to Jesus, our faithful Savior, we ask. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Genesis chapter 38, then, beginning in verse 1. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again, she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Sarib uh, when she bore him. Now Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up her offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so, uh, is, so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked, in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Selah, my son, grows up, for he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to, to Timnah, to 
his sheep shears, he and his friend hired the Adulamites. And when Tamar was told your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Enanim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Selah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that's in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cold prostitute who was at Ananim at the roadside? And they said, no cold prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also the men of the place said, no cold prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things uh, as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were t twins in her womb, and when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first, but he drew back his hand. Behold, his brother came out, and she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So most of you are aware, I trust, that St. Augustine's major work was called The City of God. It was written in response to the sacking of Rome in uh, AD 410 by the so-called Vandals, Germanic tribes from the north. And it raised questions, this sacking did, of whether Rome was in fact the eternal city and why Rome was sacked. And there was some suggestion that it was the Christians' fault, that because uh, the Romans had at least tolerated, if not embraced, Christianity as the official religion, that that it had stirred them away from the turned them away from the traditional gods and led to the weakening of that eternal city. And so, so Augustine wrote the city of God as a kind of apologetic, uh, defending Christians, but also presenting a, a worldview that might make sense of what was happening there in Rome. In the city of God, he argues that there are actually two cities that dominate all of human history. The city of man on the one side and the city of God on the other, he suggested that the citizens of the city of man were those who embraced the, the pleasures and passions of this world. They, they lived out of bitter jealousy and, and the passions of, of their ambition. They, 
they divided and conquered. They, they lived arrogantly and in a kind of false and earthly wisdom. On the other side were those who made up the city of God. They were the elect through time and space. Ultimately, those who had trusted in Jesus and who loved him, who worshipped him and served him. And between these two cities, Augustine suggested, there was an opposition, a kind of war that would last until Jesus returned at the end of history. He went on to suggest there were two ways in which the city of God might relate to the city of man. On the one hand, the city of God, those who make up the city of God, the citizens of the city of God, might separate themselves from the city of man might withdraw and, and separate completely from life in this world in a kind of monastic, ascetic retreat. On the other hand, he suggested there might be a kind, if you will, cultural war mentality in which the city of God wages war on the city of man to try to take it over, to make sure its standards are in fact enforced among the city of man. But neither, Augustine said, was actually the right response. Uh, neither monastic retreats nor cultural war mentality was the right approach. Rather, those who loved Jesus and desired to follow him needed to follow him in the midst of the city of man, that, that ultimately the city of God was, in this time, contained within the city of man. But ultimately, the city of man would be contained in the city of God. And so the citizens of the citizens of God, Christians, were to love Jesus and love their neighbors and especially love their enemies. Why? why? Why did that make sense? Well, Augustine says this, the city of God must bear in mind that among her very enemies, get it, among her very enemies are hidden her future citizens. And when confronted with them, she must not think it a fruitless task to bear with their hostility until she finds them confessing the faith. In other words, no matter how unlikely it may seem at the time, we must always remember that the future citizens of the city of God were first citizens of the city of man. That those who trust in Jesus were first those who, who, who trusted in themselves, who, who lived for the world and for its passions and its pleasures. E even those who seem the most opposite, even those whom, whom we believe to be our enemies, even those whom we might uh, view as uh, Democrats or as Republicans, those who we see on the television screen that cause our, our blood to boil, even them. They are candidates, as unlikely as it may seem, for the city of God. If we believe in the power of God's grace, then we believe that God can change the most unlikely candidates. God can show up in the most unlikely circumstances, and God can use the most unlikely consequences in order to gain men and women and boys and girls for himself. How do I know that? Because of Genesis 38. Because of Genesis 38. This scene, as we read it, I'm sure it made you uncomfortable. It is a tawdry, seamy affair. In fact, 
Many Bible commentators question why in the world Genesis 38's in here. One, C.F.D. Mole, a British commentator, says that, that this is a horrible, sordid story that has no place in Holy Writ. But I think this chapter is here to remind us that God's grace is always unlikely grace. And all those who receive God's grace, we were once children of the city of man, undeserving, unlikely, wretches all, just like Judah. Judah, the most unlikely candidate of God for God's grace that you could possibly imagine. I mean, we've seen this already. Back in Genesis chapter 37, remember J Judah's role there? He was the one who suggested that they sell Joseph into slavery. He was likely the one to have come up with the scheme to, to deceive their father. I mean, how unfeeling do you have to be to sell your brother into slavery and his likely death and then to lie to your own father about it? Clearly, from what we already know about Judah, he is a calloused man, a hardened man. He's focused on what he wants, and he wants what he wants when he wants it, and he's going to take it, and he doesn't care what you think about it. And in fact, as we go through this chapter, Genesis 38, you see two characteristics that make Judah one of the most unlikely candidates for God's grace that there is. The first characteristic is that he's sensual. I mean, all throughout Genesis, we've noted how the patriarchs were very careful about whom their children married, right? I mean, ultimately, it was the fact that Esau married the Hittite women that showed his faulty character and caused Rebecca to say, these, these Hittite women that Esau married, they make me want to die. Let's send Jacob away. But who is it that Judah married? Who, do, who does he marry? Well, it seems almost without thought. He's hanging out with his Adumalite, and then chapter 38, verse 2, there Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again, she bore a son. She called his name Shelah. I mean, these verbs, they, they, they show how thoughtless he is. He took her, went into her, conceived, bore. She conceived again, bore. She conceived again, bore. And two, notice there's a switch in pronouns. He names his first son. But it appears he's not even around to name his other two children. All of this demonstrates a kind of thoughtlessness, a, a sensuality that's almost animalistic. He wants what he wants, and he takes what he wants. You see the same thing happen later. His wife dies, and... He's back with Hiram, the Adulamite again, and what happens? Well, he, he sees this woman by the side of the road, verse 15. When Judah thought, saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face, and he turned to her at the roadside, said, come, let me come into you. Of course, he doesn't know, it's his daughter-in-law. But, but again, this is thoughtless sensuality. Judah's fallen in with the, with the cultural practices of the ancient Near Eastern world around him. He just thoughtlessly pursues this cult, what he thinks is a cult prostitute. 
in the ancient Near Eastern world, they would sleep with these cold prostitutes in order to try to secure fertility from the gods. Even though he's undoubtedly known the name of Yahweh and seen how God has dealt with his father Jacob, here he is with no real ability to reign in his desires, no real ability to, to reign in his appetites. He simply sees and he takes what he wants when he wants it. That really is the other characteristic that makes him an unlikely candidate for God's grace, isn't it? Not only is he sensual, he is senseless. He seems to be utterly callous. I mean, you see that when his own sons die. When Ur and Onan are struck down by the Lord, there's no record that, that Judah thinks twice about it beyond the fact that he wants to protect his third son. I mean, that's in stark contrast to when, when Jacob discovers that Joseph is apparently dead. At the end of chapter 37, you can see it in verse 34, then Jacob tore his garments and put on sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. His father wept for him. That's how Jacob responded to the death of his 11th born son, Joseph. But, but Judah doesn't seem to bat an eye. It seems to suggest he's a hard, hard man who takes what he wants when he wants it and experiences challenge and struggle and loss and doesn't feel it. I wonder, how do you pierce the heart of a man like this? How do you bring a man like this to repentance? How do you get through to him at all? I mean, it, doesn't it seem unlikely? Some of you have family members just like Judah, perhaps a brother or a sister, perhaps an adult child, Perhaps it's someone outside of your family, a friend that you have walked beside for many years, and, and they're just utterly given over to sensuality. They want what they want, and they just take it thoughtlessly, even though you know it's going to destroy them. And they seem as though they just go through life, not, not really even caring, hardened to the effects of, of what they're doing upon themselves, on those who love them the most and the best. They, that family member that that you have that's, that's so unlikely as a candidate for God's grace. You've, you've prayed and prayed, but, but in the end, they seem like what, what Paul describes in Ephesians chapter 4, when Paul says that they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them. Due to the hardness of their hearts, they become callous and given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. That's your loved one, your 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 brother, your sister, your child, your friend. They, they seem to be utterly callous. And though you pray for them, in, your, in the back of your mind, you're thinking, yeah, what am I doing? Why do I keep praying? They're not coming to Christ. God's not going to show them grace. What? It's because they seem utterly unlikely as candidates. And perhaps they've gotten themselves into circumstances that, that are unlikely circumstances to, in which to find God's grace. We have to admit this situation that we hear here in Genesis 38. It, it's a set of, of circumstances where God's grace seems to be utterly unlikely. This is a situation where you see how, how wicked and wayward Judah and his family really are. You see the wickedness, in, especially in Judah's sons. 
the Bible just tells us flat out that Ur, Judah's firstborn, is evil. You see it in verse 7, but, but Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord. Ur, if you flip it around, those, those Hebrew letters that make up his name, it's the Hebrew word for evil. I think Moses, and perhaps even Judah himself, he was making a play on this young man's name and really his character. When the Lord sees how evil he is, what does he do to him? He puts him to death, strikes him dead. But it's not only Ur that's evil, Onan is as well. And, and you see Onan's evil, especially in his refusal to carry out the, the expected norms of what was called Leverite marriage. In the ancient Near Eastern world, the expectation was that if uh, a woman was widowed without a child, that the brother-in-law would actually supply her with a child. To, to be a widow without a husband or a son was to be utterly unprotected, unprovided, unprovided for, and ultimately left to die. And so this was a way in which ultimately Tamar might have someone who would provide for her. But Onan didn't want to do that because he knew that if Tamar had a son, then the son would inherit everything. He would be in Ur's place. And right now, who's in first place? Who's the oldest? Oh, that's Onan. Onan would be Judah's heir. Onan would receive the double blessing. Onan would get everything that belonged to Judah. He didn't want his brother and ultimately Tamar's son to get that. And so he would not give offspring to his brother. And the result, verse 10, what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord. And he put him to death also. And so God judged these two wicked sons. And it sets up a circumstance that shows um, really how unlikely it is that God's grace would come here. These sons are wicked. The third son, Sheila, is, his father doesn't want to give him to Tamar because, you know, after all, she's kind of unlucky, right? She's been married twice. What happened to both her husbands? Yeah, they're dead. I'm not going to give my third child away to, to just die senselessly. You go home to your father's house, Judah says to Tamar. When Sheila's old enough, we'll see. But this set of circumstances that are wicked to the core, it actually it provides a way for, for waywardness to, to be evidenced and ultimately for Judah to come to know himself. As you know, as we read together, Tamar figures out that Sheila is not going to be given to her in marriage. And so she takes matters into her own hand, trusting the fact that Judah's wayward heart would actually lead him to her. She dresses as a temple prostitute. She sets herself up at the, on the side of the road on the way to town. She waits for Judah because she already knows how his wayward heart and mind works. He wants what he wants when he wants it. He is sensual and unsensible. And sure enough, Judah comes and he thinks she's a prostitute. And he says, come, let, let me come in to you. And what's striking is how Tamar negotiates. What will you give me that you may come into me? I will send you a young goat from the block. If you give me a pledge until you send it, he says, what pledge shall I give you? She says, your signet and your cord and your staff that's in your hand. Now, she's obviously protecting herself against Judah because she knows that Judah is a wayward heart and a wayward mind. He's both sensual and senseless. He's hard. 
And so basically she's asking for his driver license, driver's license and credit cards. I mean, that's what they are. The, the signet would have been on a cord. He would have used that to identify himself in any legal document. The staff with his symbol of authority within his family. And so by asking for the, the signet, the cord, and the staff, she wanted things by which it would be impossible for him to escape. Things that would undoubtedly identify him. His driver's license, his credit cards. But what's ironic, of course, is Judas quick to fulfill his pledge, sends the goat, tries to track her down, wants his driver's license and credit cards back, doesn't want to create the wrong impression by leaving those things just lying around with a prostitute. Can't find her. He's much more, much more eager to fulfill that pledge than to fulfill his promise to give Sheila to Tamar. But this entire circumstance, it's not, it's not one in which you expect God's grace to come, is it? It's incredibly unlikely. It's wicked and wayward. It's, it's something that would show up on a midday talk show or on TMZ. It's something that titillates and, and creates interest, but, but kind of in a way that you're kind of like, I don't want to watch what's going to happen. How can God's grace come here? For that matter, how can it come in your unlikely circumstance? Some of you have circumstances that you believe that God cannot enter into. Perhaps it was a child out of wedlock. Perhaps it was in your previous workplace in, in the embezzlement of funds. Perhaps it was heavy drug use that really no one knows about. Perhaps it's some other circumstance. But there's those circumstances in which you think God's grace cannot meet me here. What we heard already in the assurance of pardon, uh, that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Well, yes, but not this circumstance. No, this circumstance I'm going to keep hidden away. This circumstance I'm going to keep in the closet. This is a circumstance in which God's grace cannot meet me. It's unlikely, as unlikely as places you can imagine, for God's grace to meet me here. But friends, what you have to understand about the grace of God is that it is, is broader and wider and higher and deeper than you and I can measure. God's grace can, can rescue the most unlikely candidate. God's grace can enter into the most unlikely circumstances. And God's grace can show up even in the most unlikely consequence. The consequence that shows up in our text is obvious, isn't it? Tamar's pregnant. Three months later, everyone's buzzing about it. The news comes to Judah. And what does Judah roar out in verse 25? Bring her out and let her be burned. It's kind of a twofold solution. It allows Judah to appear publicly like he's righteous, even though we know he's not. We're going to deal with that immoral woman, that wicked woman. Let's burn her. Uh, not coincidentally, he also deals with a, a problem in the family. Because, of course, if she's ex executed, he doesn't have to give Sheila to her. Two birds, one stone, neat solution. Of course, it's far beyond what the law requires. And yet... In this circumstance, as it unfolds, as unlikely as it may seem, this is the place where God grants Judah repentance. 
You, you remember back to the previous chapter, Genesis chapter 37, after Judah leads his brothers into selling them, into selling Joseph into slavery, and then likely concocts uh, the scheme to lie to their father. What do they do? They, they take this, this symbol of authority robe, they rip it apart, they dip it in blood, they send it to their father, and they say to him, Genesis 37, verse 23, please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. Please identify. What happens here? Was Judah's kinsman go to get Tamar in order to bring her out, in order to destroy her? She sent word to her father-in-law with the driver's license and credit cards. And what does she say? Look at verse 25. Please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Judah and the brothers, he said, please identify. Tamar says, please identify. That was the moment, my friends, when the penny dropped. And all of a sudden, I think for Judah, it all came rushing back to him. Joseph's cries that he had hardened his heart to as, as Joseph was in the pit screaming to be let out and he was sitting there eating whatever his peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Or the deception of his father or his failure with his sons. How could they be evil and not know the Lord? Or his injustice towards Tamar. It was in that moment when the penny dropped that the, that the two selves that had, that had come apart in Judah were forced back together. He had a self that appeared righteous. Bring her out and let her be burned. A, a self of being a patriarch and a follower of the Lord. And everyone accounted Judah, perhaps, as a righteous man. But there was this real self, this sensuous self, this senseless self that nobody knew and had been torn apart. And he couldn't access the truth about himself until that moment when they were forced together. And he says, she is more righteous than I. Since I did not give her my son, she will die. She is innocent. And I'm guilty. I'm the sinner. I broke my word. I repent. I very much think that's what's happening here. And I very much think this is the turning point for Judah. He's going to be a different man from this point. A different man that's going to ultimately offer himself as a surety, as a replacement. A different man who's ultimately going to receive the great promise that through him, the obedience of the nations would come to one of his own children. Don't miss it. Through this circumstance, this horrific circumstance and consequence, an incestuous relationship producing a pregnancy, he is forced back together and forced to confront himself and to see himself as he really is to repent. And listen, friend, God was going to do that to you. If you're one of his, he's not going to let you go your own way. He's just not. You may present to this, this congregation and your friends here or to your family members of the workplace as though you're righteous and you're holy and you're a follower of Jesus, but you know, you know, you are divided apart. And there is all kinds of stuff, sensuality and senselessness and other things as well. And God is not going to let you go. He's going to force you back together 
so that you can actually see who you are in the light of who he actually is. Because he is holy and beautiful and glorious. And when we see ourselves in the light of who he is, we see our sinfulness. We see that world that Paul calls the flesh. And when we see who he is, and we begin to see who we are, we know what we most desperately need, and that's God's grace. And it's a grace that leads us to repent, to say who we really are. I'm guilty. I'm the sinner. I was wrong. I repent. Friend, if that's you this morning, listen to me. There is no sin so small that it will not damn you to hell. But there is not, no sin that is so big that can damn you if you turn from it and run to Jesus Christ as fast as you can. That's what the Westminster Confession of Faith teaches us. But it's what scripture teaches us here. Because it's ultimately our repentance that works out redemption. You get a sense of the redemptive purposes of God, not just in this entire unlikely scene but especially in Judah and Tamar's life. And it comes in these, these children. God doesn't simply give her one, one son. She gives her two to replace her and Onan. And in these two sons, you have one who sticks out his hand first, and there's a red cord attached to signal him as the oldest, but his hand pulls back, and the other comes forward, the younger, is going to be the one who matters. And the nurse says, what a breach you've made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Now here's the grace. Here's the redemption. You know who Perez is? His great-great-grandson is going to be a man named Boaz. And Boaz's great-great-grandson is going to be the greatest king God's people will have up until Jesus. His name is David. And in God's mercy and grace, out of his work of redemption in this entire sordid scene, this child born out of incest is going to stand in the line of Jesus the Messiah, the son of Abraham, the son of David, the son of God. It's also unlikely, isn't it? But friends, that's exactly how grace works. See, all of, all of the grace of God that comes to us is undeserved and uncoerced and un likely you and I we deserve none of it there's none here who deserve any of the grace of God there's nothing you can do to to placard your works before God so that he will give you grace we are all in the same place as Judah utterly unlikely and yet we're going to sing amazing grace how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me now here's the thing if we're free to confess that we are unlikely candidates for grace and that God has saved us wretches, how dare we put anyone outside the grace of God? Democrat, Republican, white, black, male, female, how dare we put anyone outside of the grace of God? We are all unlikely candidates. But God's grace is always amazing grace. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Almighty God, we do pray that you would shape our hearts and reform them. 
We pride ourselves in being reformed, so Lord, please reform us so that we would be amazed by this grace, overwhelmed by it, shook to the core by it, and it would change the way we view everyone we run across, as sensual and senseless as they may be, whether in our own families or whether the people we see on TV. And may we be a people, a Jesus people, a grace people, who really believe what we're going to sing, that grace is amazing and utterly undeserved. Grant us this, Lord, we ask. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we made a mistake when we printed the, and then we left off the last verse, the sixth verse. Thankfully, I think you all know the last verse of Amazing Grace. So we're actually going to sing six verses, not just the five that are printed. And let's stand together to sing of God's amazing grace. Amen. 